that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where narrative etiquette dictates at least one major refusal to action per story arc in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 62, which begins with Mr. Skyfish misunderstanding how planes work and ends with light filtering down through the rocks in the crack in the earth. (laughs) Did you say 62 weird on purpose? No. Okay. But... It's charming, leave it. Yeah, might as well. Now that we've brought it up, I can't take it out. (laughs) (laughs) We are rejoining the group on the horizontal stabilizer out here by the crashed plane. And Mr. Skyfish is piping up to inform Max that they've got the wind up their arse and it's time to go. (laughs) That reminds me of a podcast that I was listening to, Science Versus, and actually... Wendy Zuckerman, I think I've mentioned her before, I think, on this podcast. Wendy Zuckerman is Australian, and she was talking to an astronaut. Can't remember his name, the guy who had the twin. That guy, that astronaut. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, the one who came back to Earth, and because of his time in space, his DNA had actually been altered. Yes. So that he wasn't technically a twin anymore. <laughs> yes. So she was interviewing him, and she asked him, what's it like sitting there in a rocket with all that firepower coming out your ass? And of course, she said it arse because she has an Australian accent. It was great. And he, who I can't remember his name, the astronaut, was a little tickled and a little flabbergasted that she put it that way. Like he had never heard it described as, you know, all that rocket power coming out your ass before. Right. Yeah. So that's what that reminded me of. So the astronaut's name is Scott Kelly. Thank you. His genetic expression changed. He and his brother Mark are still mostly identical, but the gene expression is slightly different. Yes. I think 7% different based on what I'm looking at. (laughs) So Mr. Skyfish, he's making a big point about the fact that they have the wind at their backs. They have the wind blowing in the direction that they want to go. It seems to me that Mr. Skyfish and the children around him see the crash plane, which they've already called a sky raft once before, as something that functions more like their fishing boat than the kite that Mr. Skyfish uses. The kite flies because the wind is pushing it from below, or rather the shape of the kite creating a low pressure area underneath the wing, which lifts the whole thing. But the idea is that the string holds it down so that way the wind has something to push against and the thing doesn't spiral out of control there. But all of their wind-based propulsion experience is based on the wind pushing something. And so they just assume that in order for the wind to help them get anywhere, it needs to be pushing them from behind when really, when you get a plane that big, I would say, and I'm not an aeronautical person, (laughs) but I would say in order for a plane to generate lift, it needs to push against the air itself. Yes. And that's what the jets do. Mm -hmm. And the air that moves across the wing then creates the low pressure zone underneath the wing giving it lift right so i find it charming that they think they understand how the plane works but also just a little funny that they think all they need is a big enough tailwind and that'll be enough for them to fly so that's why they got so excited when there was such a strong wind that came in 
the canyon Mm -hmm. because for the first time they had both Captain Walker and a nice strong wind. And I'm pretty sure they assume that Captain Walker can not only fly himself, but command the wind to carry them along as well, as Mm -hmm. long as they're standing on the sky raft. So they really just have no idea what they're talking about, which is not surprising. I wouldn't expect them to know anything about that. It's not surprising and it's a little endearing. (laughs) that they have such faith in what they think flying is. But this whole idea of moving around using a sail or using wind power actually reminded me of something from the 2015 Mad Max video game. Now, this is nothing that flies in the face of cannon or anything like that. At one point, you go into a new area and you have to go talk to the faction leader for that zone. And so you go to this old bombed out nuclear facility and inside the giant cooling tower is a character named Pink Eye. They are the stronghold leader and she's kind of a cool character because she doesn't have legs but she has this big old motorized chair with a big old engine in it and it's really cool looking but she wants Max to help her people build something that they call the sand sled. Basically it's a big old catamaran that slides along a salt flat and it's pushed by the wind and so Max has to go out and find a sail bring it back. He has to find them a renewable food source, and then he has to drive the truck with this giant land catamaran out to the edge of what they call the Big Nothing, which, as I mentioned, is a giant salt flat. And then Max sits there next to his car, and he watches them just sail out into the Big Nothing. And no one's ever come back from it because there's just nothing but salt and sky from where they start out as far as the eye can see, and they just kind of drop that sail and the wind pushes them out. And it's a really cool concept. And it made me wonder if there's anything of a real world equivalent to that. And it turns out there are a couple of ones. You can start out with the little hobby level things, building it out of toy wheels and popsicle sticks. And then you put a big piece of paper on it and blow on it. That's a small scale example. But if you feel like spending 14,000 American dollars, you can get a two person contraption called the Sea Quad, which is basically two narrow narrow kayaks attached to each other and then you use one of those handheld kite things that are used for kite surfing and whatnot and that pulls you around the beach on these big old bicycle tires and you go right into the water and it's buoyant so you just sail right out into the water. Okay that sounds like fun but for 14 grand I'd rather buy a gyrocopter. Mm -hmm. That is very fair. (laughs) I think there are funner ways to spend that much money. I don't think the sand sled from the video game would do the waiting ones much good because it's not really built to handle dunes, Mm -hmm. but it is kind of a cool idea. Even so, just to see it all come together. It's a very interesting little set of side missions. It's not even required for the main storyline. It's just something cool you can do. Yeah. So the idea of catching the wind also reminds me of another video game. And this is one that I just recently learned about. It's called Far, colon, Lone Sales. So I went over to the developer's website and they described the game thusly. Far, Lone Sales is a vehicle adventure game. In a unique vehicle, you travel across a dried out ocean following the tracks of a once thriving civilization. Through an array of roadblocks and through hazardous weather, you need to keep your vessel going. Where will this journey take you? Are you the last of your kind? And the idea is you play through and it's sort of a 2D slash 3D layout. Your character runs around on this flat plane and then the visuals have a lot of depth to them. So it has the 
illusion of being in 3D, but I watched some gameplay of it and it looks really interesting. I don't know if I'll pick it up myself because like, when do I have time to play computer games when I'm working on the podcast? <laughs> but it's a really interesting contraption that they give you. It starts off with a motor and then you pick up the sail. And so as you're going across this dried out area, just going left to right across the screen, you're just constantly just sailing. And it's a really cool concept. The premise does sound interesting. And it's a gorgeous looking game. I'm a sucker for pretty games. I'll have to show it to you once we're done recording. Okay. That's how I judge whether or not I'm going to download a game on my phone mm. is if it's pretty. I look at a game like Far Alone Sales, not to get too off the subject, but just to say it. It looks like the kind of thing that they could probably make work for a mobile game, but they're building it for the PC. Mm. Or Mac. I think it works for either one. Anyway, wind-powered vehicles on land. The crashed 747 is not going to work that way. Doesn't matter how much wind they've got or where it's blowing, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So Max is standing there and he's listening to all of these kids. Some of them are still chanting Walker. Some of them are shouting for him to catch the wind, to do something. And the look on his face, you can tell that he's trying to stay his normal observant Max face. But you look at his eyes and the way they're darting around. He's looking at these different groups of children standing on this plane. And then he takes a breath. And it's almost like a sigh or a ragged inhale or something like that. I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but he takes that breath and then he turns and starts to walk away. I do like this return to Silent Max. We haven't had a lot of that in this movie. Max is rather talkative. So I like the return to quiet, but it's still not the same type of quiet that we got, say, in Road Warrior. Mm -hmm. In Road Warrior, when he was being quiet, a lot of times it was because he was neutral. He didn't care. He wasn't out to help anybody. He just wanted to complete his deal, get his car, and go. Yeah. This is not a neutral quiet. It looks to me like he's conflicted quiet. He wants to help these kids, but at the same time, he knows that there's nothing he can do for them. And especially in this moment, there is no possible way in this moment that he's going to convince them of anything. It doesn't matter what he says, because in symbolic terms, just a few moments ago, he performed a miracle. And now they are out there with the ultimate symbol, the ultimate talisman of their religion, and they've presented this to their savior. This moment, there's nothing he could say that could like calm them down. Yeah. His only option here is to walk away. And he's still probably, I think this is what we're seeing in his eyes, he's still trying to wrap his head around what is going on. This is all really new to him. It's a bizarre situation. Not that long ago, he was asleep. Yeah. <laughs> this has all happened kind of fast for him. Mm -hmm. I'm very sympathetic <laughs> to his reaction of just turning around and walking away. Yeah. What stood out to me in this shot was not so much the visuals, but the music. And I made the statement that he seemed conflicted because of the music. As he's standing there, we hear some horns come in, and it's almost a triumphant, heroic sort of melody that they're playing, but in from the other side comes in a theme or a cue of music that we last heard in Barter Town, when Max was making decisions that were selfishly benefiting himself as relating to the Thunderdome. Okay. So the music goes back and forth between 
horns, barter town cue, horns, barter town cue. And then as Max turns to walk away, they come in together, but the horns are now playing the melody of the barter town cue. Ooh. So he's going back and forth between the whole be these children's savior or keep yourself alive. And as he's turning around to walk away, the side that has won out was the keep yourself alive argument. It has. Maybe he sees this situation as I can be heroic and help these children by staying alive and keeping an eye on them. That could be it. Right. Like he's trying to figure out a way he can do both. He's very practiced at making himself his own priority. Yeah. Which is definitely a skill. Some people do not have that skill, but he has perfected it because he's had to. But so is everybody else in the world. That's just the world that they live in now. But he can't help himself. And I think it's the children thing. Mm. He's got a soft spot for children yep. and he can't help himself. He is drawn to helping them, to protecting them, to doing whatever he can. Whether or not they look to him as a savior, he would want to help them anyways. But I think he is a little disturbed or uncomfortable or taken aback by being presented with the savior role. Yeah. He doesn't want that kind of label. He doesn't want to accept a mistaken identity. He doesn't want to pretend to be something he's not. He wants to help these people, but he wants to do it as Max. Right. He wants to do it in the way that Max would do it, which we're going to see that method <laughs> coming yes. up in the next few weeks. Uh -huh, yeah. It's a little unorthodox, but it works. And that smacks. <laughs> it's a little unorthodox, but it works. We cut back to the waiting ones standing over on the horizontal elevator stabilizer wing thing. <laughs> Still don't know what to call it. You would think I would have looked it up and seen exactly what part of the plane it's called, but I'm, no, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> but we start off looking more or less at Savannah, and then the shot pulls out to show that all of the children are standing there on the wreck of the plane. And I'm very interested in Savannah and her expression mm -hmm. and yeah. how she's looking back at the other kids. And it seems to me like she's in a bit of a pickle. She went into the wilderness. She took her leaving. She said bitey bye to those that she'd birthed and wandered out into the nothing with the hope of finding Captain Walker and returning him to the tribe. And she found someone that she thought was Captain Walker and and I don't know if I want to say she risked her reputation, but she kind of risked her entire reputation on this guy that she found that she told everyone was Captain Walker actually turning out to be Captain Walker. And that's just not the case. There is a certain amount of credibility that she has assumed mm -hmm. and needs in her position in the community as a leader, as the eldest. And there does seem to be expectations put upon those who take the leaving. The expectation being that either you're going to come back with Captain Walker or you're not gonna come back at all. So if you come back under any other circumstances, you have failed or dishonored yourself in some way. Yeah, I don't know why I thought of the movie 300, but <laughs> there's a statement in that movie, the Spartans are leaving to go fight the Persians. And I want to say that it's Lena Headey's character, the queen tells King Leonidas, who's Gerard Butler to- Come back with your shield. 
or on it. Basically saying, come back still a warrior or come back a slain warrior. Mm -hmm. Die honorably in battle or succeed in battle and then come back to me under those circumstances. Right. Don't come back without your shield saying that you were defeated or deserted or some sort of dishonorable thing like that. I feel like that's a very similar situation as you were saying with the leaving. The idea is you go out and you come back with Walker or you don't come back at all. And time has certainly narrowed that focus of Captain Walker. Who cares whether or not it's Captain Walker? If the person that gets brought back has knowledge of what happened to the others or has knowledge of where another settlement is or brings help with them. Who cares whether or not it's Captain Walker? Mm -hmm. But this religion that they've created dictates that it must be Captain Walker who comes back. And that falls in line very much to the Christian religion that believes that Jesus Christ will come again. And it's very specific. Yeah. And sometimes that narrow focus can exclude other people who might come with a similar message. It makes me think of the religious leaders in Galilee that rejected Jesus Christ because they were expecting a certain kind of savior and he wasn't the one that fit the vision they had in their mind. And that being said, I'm very much looking forward to Monday's Minute because they talk about that exact thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Week 22 is pretty great. Yeah. I'm very much looking forward to yeah. it. Yeah, it starts to get a little more meaty. Exactly. As the shot of the waiting ones pulls out, we see all of them standing there on the plane. One thing I didn't get to mention on Monday, because the conversation just didn't go that direction, this area that they filmed this scene in is right off of Botany Bay. I mentioned that on Monday, but I wanted to get a little bit more into that area. So Botany Bay, it's an open oceanic embayment located in Sydney, about 13 kilometers south of the Sydney Central Business District. Its source is the confluence of the Georges River at Terran Point and the Cook River at Kimar, Kimak, Kiamag, Kiamag. Just and pronounce the, it every which way and then keep the one that sounds best. And the Cooks River at Kimag, which flows 10 kilometers or six miles to the east before meeting its mouth, the Tasman Sea. The Tasman Sea, midpoint between La Perouse and Kurnell. The land adjacent to Botany Bay was settled for many thousands of years by the Tharawai and Eora Aboriginal peoples and their associated clans. On the 29th of April, 1770, Botany Bay was the site of James Cook's first landing of the HMS Endeavour on the landmass of Australia after his extensive navigation of New Zealand. Later, the British planned Botany Bay as the site for a penal colony. Out of these plans came the first European habitation of Australia at Sydney Cove. Although the penal settlement was almost immediately shifted to Sydney Cove, for some time in Britain transportation to Botany Bay was a metonym for transportation to any of the Australian penal settlements, which is why when you listen to some British and Irish folk songs, they talk about being shipped off to Botany Bay because the singer is a criminal in some way or has been declared a criminal by the crown. Ah, okay. I'm willing to bet not all circumstances <laughs> involved actual criminality. Right. I'm sure some of those trips to Botany Bay were more English convenience than anything else. Yeah. As you have been talking about Botany Bay, it's like ringing a bell in my brain. And of course, I know the name Botany Bay. It's worldwide known part of Australia. But it was still ringing a bell, a Star Trek bell. Yes, it was. In my head. So I had to look it up. So the USS Botany Bay was the starship 
that Khan and his people left Earth in. Mm -hmm. And in the world of Star Trek, they left Earth in 1996 on the USS Botany Bay. During the eugenics wars. Yes. So in Star Trek, the original series, that's the ship that the Enterprise came upon that they found the cryogenic pods and woke up Khan and his people that sparked the whole Wrath of Khan situation. Yeah. Yeah. So that was on the USS Botany Bay. (laughs) And the thing that rung a bell in my head was Chekhov over the radio calling to the Botany Bay Mm -hmm. with no response. Aside from a reference from Star Trek, you've also got a folk song specifically called Botany Bay and it's pretty much a song about being shipped off to a penal colony. No two ways about it. And then there's also a 1953 film called Botany Bay, which is about prisoners in 1787 being shipped from Newgate Jail on Charlotte to found a new penal colony in New South Wales. So that's a little bit about the area around the shoot. All right. Something interesting that stood out to me as I was looking into this scene, as they were really getting into it in the behind the scenes documentary, George Ogilvie said that the children are the keystone of the film because the film is about the future. It's about hope and the hope lies in the children, which of course made me think of Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All. (laughs) Absolutely. Because she believes the children are our future. You raise them right and then they lead the world in a good way. But That's funny because nobody's raising these children. Right. But the idea that Ogilvy puts forward that the children are the keystone to this movie, that without the kids, this movie would topple over. And I'm not entirely sure I believe that, but I also see where he's coming from. I'm not 100% on board with that yet. But as we continue to analyze the movie, if we keep that assertion in mind, I think we might find it more and more true. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the sentiment. The idea that these Mad Max movies are about the future. Who will get to determine the future? Who will have control of the future? In the first Mad Max movie back in 1979, the question was, who will control the roads? Will it be the gangs? Will it be the police? Who is going to have control over the roads in the future? And of course, the answer to that question was neither because they're going to destroy themselves and leave no one but Max out on the roads. In the second movie, who's going to have control over the future? Will it be the people who make things or will it be the people who take things? And in the second movie, it's very distinctly the future is in the hands of the people who make things because all the people who take things are killed. Granted, a lot of the makers are killed too, but you know, details, details. So in this movie, the question is now, who will control the future, the children or the adults? And that's how I interpret his statement that they are the keystone of the film. I think so. I think if this movie had just been Bartertown, no beyond Thunderdome, just Thunderdome, we might have come to the end of the movie and thought, well, what was the point of all of that? Mm -hmm. What progress did Max make? What progress did society make? Did they go forward? Did they go backward? I'm not sure Bartertown in and of itself is enough. I think it needs something to contrast it. Yeah. And the children very much contrast Bartertown. That's a really good point. You can hold up Bartertown against what we saw in The Road Warrior, and Bartertown doesn't look that bad. Sure, authoritarian, definitely not free, in every sense of the word, but a welcome alternative to being harassed by raiders in your compound. Right. And so you need 
the contrast of children not living in an authoritarian society to contrast and show, okay, yeah, Barter Town, it may be a step up, but you're still very much in the mire to call back to the fact that there are so many pigs in Underworld. <laughs> so getting back to the minute at hand, these children, which are the future of the world, standing on the plane, and the whole scene fades to black. And this black screen lasts for quite a while. It is roughly four seconds of black screen. And George Miller uses that fade to black to show us the passage of time. Right. So does a significant fade to black like this one, a long one, does that signify a longer break in time? Or does it just signify an emotional break in time? Because we just spent the last two minutes with the waiting ones more or less bearing their soul to Max, being like, this is what we believe, this is the thing that we hope for, this is our everything in life, and Max turns his back on them. Mm. So we almost need a four seconds to take a breath and be like, oh man, that was heavy. I agree. After this fade to black, we are going to pop up back in the crack in the earth, but it doesn't really make sense to me to start talking about crack in the earth stuff until Friday's minute because this fade to black is more or less the perfect ending for this minute. We don't need to sully the ending of today's episode by talking about three seconds of fade in. So we can <laughs> no. worry about that on Friday. So when we get back on Friday, we are going to reveal that Max is just hanging out with Sally Ann and the crack in the earth, despite the fact that he isn't Captain Walker. And we're going to see that most of the waiting ones are keeping their distance, but one intrepid group has decided that it's time to take action. So in order to see who that group is, I mean, yeah, you could go watch the movie or you could just come back on Friday and listen to us talk about it. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 62 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time